are on the third Sunday out of seven of bad news. We get to really good news. Um, I guess, what are we talking about a month from now? But boy, do we have another month of, uh, of bad news until the middle of March here from uh, Romans 2. And um, this Romans 2, which we hope to break up into three parts, and then Romans 3, 1 to 20, there is not much um, encouraging, but so much, to, as we talked about a little bit the other day, the bad or the bad news, the good or the good news. And I hope that that is uh, what you're seeing by uh, camping on this is to say, yeah, my depravity runs deeper than I probably would like to admit or ever thought. And um, I think that's good for us then because the cross becomes really, really big and really, really good when we think about the distance between God's holiness and uh, our sinfulness. Carter's going to read uh, for us starting to kind of remind us from 128, the last uh, time that God gave them up is mentioned three times, 24, 26, and 28. Uh, that's mentioned. And then this, uh, uh, just a list of 21 sins. And then we'll pray um, and, and get to work on chapter 2, 1 to 5. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things to d- deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, Josh, would you pray for us? And uh, we'll get busy. Sure. Father, thank you for giving us another opportunity to study a word, to think deeply about the things of God. And Lord, I pray that uh, this passage, though it is weighty, would be impressed on our souls and that its truth would penetrate deeply and shape the way that we think and live as Christians. And Lord, help us to apply this text to our life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I think both Doriani and um, Schreiner both talked about how Paul is using a, a rhetoric, I don't know the right wording here, called a um, diatribe. I didn't even really know the Indians were involved here or what even diatribe (laughs) meant, but a diatribe um, is the way he goes about. And there are so many things in Romans uh, that are fascinating about just the way Paul writes. And so our resident expert on anything writing or um, rhetoric or what's the other words that we should be using, Josh, you probably took English. Yeah, sadly I didn't. Yeah, well, I missed that one. Yeah, man, miss <laughs> Uh So she did some good work 
with uh, how many hours of preparation did I give you? 28 hours in order to do this. Has eight pages, but has whittled it down. Yeah. Right, but you can give us this. Hopefully we'll post this on Romans, all the part that... But this is just... I think you find it fascinating, too, the way Paul writes. And, uh, and, and God is certainly all inspired. It's no different than... Isaiah or John writing the book of Revelation, but in the way he writes it, I think this will be foundational for the next uh, year of how we read this. Could you kind of help us to understand, uh, and even what a diatribe even is? Okay. okay. Um, thank you for you know asking me this yesterday, uh, late. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, I love questions because they let me research stuff and learn. So I started with, Paul's mind. God raised up a great mind. And I'm going to read a quote from Albert Barnes, you know, Barnes commentator, um, from his book, Early Training of the Apostle Paul. And Barnes said, quote, It is by raising up and endowing great minds that God secures the advance of human affairs and the accomplishment of his own plans on earth. All minds have their origin in God, and great minds seem to be created by him as he creates great oceans, great mountains, great worlds, as proofs of his own greatness. And that was Albert Barnes. And of course he's talking about the Apostle Paul. Now in the Greco-Roman world, the average private letter was about 90 words long, and the average literary letter was about 200 words long. And typically a letter would fit on one papyrus sheet, which is about the size of our notebook paper. Now to compare Paul's letters, they average 1,300 words. And his shortest one to Philemon was still 335, and the longest was to Romans, and that was 7,114 words. Hmm. Um, so, that's pretty wordy. Um, a diatribe, back in the day, now we think of a diatribe as like an angry, passionate um, venting or an angry tongue lashing, but back then, a diatribe was a form of ancient rhetoric that an author or a speaker um, would use as a style, and a dialogue style includes dialogue with an imaginary questioner or an opponent, it's called an interlocutor, question and answer constructions or hypothetical objections to um, things as a transition to the next topic. And it was really an extension of the Socratic method when the teacher would ask leading or probing questions of the students and guide them either to expose a false um, fallacy or to guide them to the right point. And Paul used it um, to help develop critical thinking skills in his recipients and enable them to approach a subject logically. And Because above all, Christianity is a thinking religion. So there's several types of addresses that you're going to find in a diatribe. And Romans chapter 2 is a shining example of some of those. He uses the loose term, O oh man, as the imaginary opponent, or the imaginary in interlocutor. He uses a second person, like you and yourself. So if you're reading it and you're thinking, well, who's the you? You know, who specifically is he talking to? But it's an it's a imaginary opponent that he's using in this style of rhetorical diatribe. He uses the emphatic rejection, um, the expression, may it never be, or Jerry's favorite, you know, what, what a, a ghastly thought, thought. yes, <laughs> um, to oppose or reject a question raised by this imaginary, you know, student. 
and it always occurs in the context of a diatribe. So when you see him say, may it never be, or something emphatic like that, you know you're reading a diatribe. And he also used phrases like, what then shall we say, or what then, you know, in Romans 3 and 4. And some of this is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary and other Bible glossaries. Um, an orator used these methods, but it was used in writing too, because quite often a letter would be read aloud to people who didn't know how to read, or in this case, like to a whole church. Um, Paul was a fantastic communicator. He was gifted enough to use quotes from other philosophers and from other writers to convey the message of the gospel. He had various tones in his letters, simple to complex sentences. He could communicate to the lowly, like fishermen or jailers, to youth or even you know, to kings. Um, but for all that, Paul bowed his knee not only in spirit and in flesh to the Lord, but he bowed his amazing intellect too. And he knew full well he was brilliant and talented. And in Philippians 3, he listed his credentials. But he found his reason for living, and it wasn't to display rhetorical tricks for the sake of rhetoric, and it wasn't to win philosophical arguments or even argue pharisaical fine points of the law, which was his trajectory prior to Damascus, but to promote the gospel to the lost sheep of the world. So just think about how God raised up him, his mind, his training, his schooling, all to find a nexus in that moment on the Damascus Road where he would use it all for God's glory and we're still benefiting, not just from the mind of Paul, but from the mind of God who raised up of Paul um, to this very day. Love it. Now, that's great. Any questions on, on that? I think we'll get to um, chapter... I have a lot of them, but I don't know if we can get to all of those right now. But look at turn the page over to chapter three, because there's you talk about a the way he asks questions, and thanks, Miss Elizabeth, for for helping us here. Um, look at the beginning of chapter three. What advantage has the uh, the Jew, or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if there were some unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. There's uh, a thousand times no. What a ghastly thought, you know, that you would even think that way. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. You may be justified in your words and prevail as you judge. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? It goes on and on. I made questions, right? He asked one question after another, and I think it's, it's just so brilliant. In the way he get, dude. Now, Miss Elizabeth, I did want to ask you one thing. It doesn't seem, and maybe I'm I'm missing it here, that he writes Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians or Philemon in quite that same way. Certainly, God's it's all inspired by God. So, would you take a guess as to why Romans would have been his recipients, or do you have a guess as to why Romans is a little more? Don't you think maybe a little more logically driven? He did the same in 1 Corinthians, and James uses the same um, rhetorical devices as the diatribe style, too. So that's the brilliance of his writing is he was able to tailor it to his Whoever recipients and conveys the same tone. Like he has an angry tone you know, in Galatians and a yeah. warm tone in Philippians. And depending on the amount of doctrine and practicality he wanted to convey, he was able to adjust to whatever his recipients would be, whether they were oral or written. Wow. 
that's just fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait for the full eight pages. Yeah, yeah. Please post those for us <laughs> well, on I the Romans. most of them because I had to window it down. Try to re resurrect it. I'll rewrite it. Oh. Well, thank you so much for that for that good. insight, and and I really love that you've uh, told us to do it in the middle of February here, so that we can we should have talked about this in January a month ago, uh, so that in the next year here we can enjoy um, how how that's written. Look, at, before we get into the actual text, though, there is, and you probably see this when he went from chapter one to chapter two. There's a whole different group of recipients here. There's a little bit of a battle between uh, commentators as to is he now after kind of the moral Gentiles or is he already after the Jews? We know in verse 17 in chapter 2, he's specifically going after the Jews. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and then he goes on. So that's for sure, I think all commentators, these 1 to 16, it's a little bit uh, iffy. I don't think, at least, uh, their boys said, I don't know that it really matters a lot. You have kind of people on different sides to say. But this is a group that all of a sudden, they're reading the first chapter, which there wouldn't have been chapters then, but they're reading the first chapter. And they're like, go, Paul. Go get them. Man, those heathens. They deserve everything that you have absolutely said to them. And then he turns both barrels on them, doesn't he? You, however, right? What's, uh, how does it start? Um, therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. Every one of you who judges. So, Josh, didn't you say comment on that? Because he went from they to you. Yeah, see if this formulation or way of thinking is helpful to you. I really think chapter 1, 18 through 32 is kind of like, one commentator put it, like concentric circles. This is kind of like the widest lens. And then starting in chapter 2, the pronoun changes, or whatever you call that, he's now saying you, uh, multiple times you. I think probably that lens is getting tightened a little bit. And I think at least he's referring to probably self-righteous Gentiles or, or maybe Gentiles who had a little bit more of an emphasis on a, living a moral life. But, I, I mean, certainly there's an emphasis on the Jews here, too. I think that may be the predominant uh, focus here from 2 all the way to 17. And then I think 17, the, the lens gets even tighter, specifically on the Jews and then I think there at three, it kind of zooms all the way back out and, um, it, you know, including everybody uh, being unrighteous and that kind of being the culmination of the argument. Yeah. But, yeah. You want me to go ahead and talk about verse one a little bit? Well, let me <clears throat> throw, I do want you to, but let me say that in chapter one, there was sinners approving of others who sin. In chapter two, there are sinners Con, uh, um, condemning others for sin. You see that? The first group was like, hey, come sin with me. Right? The pagans remember 132? That they know they uh, God's decree, righteous decree, and that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do these things, but give approval of those who practice them. So they're like that group that's saying, hey, come party with me. Come sin with me. I want, and so they don't feel quite as bad about it. They know they deserve death, but if you get a few other people doing it, then I think you, it 
helps your conscience a little bit, right? Now, chapter two, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to go sin as much as I want, but then I'm going to call everybody else out. I'm just going to be hypocritical and, and judgmental. So number one, you can say was the unrighteous. Number two, chapter two is really the self-righteous. A little bit of a worldly crowd addressed in number one. And now we're just looking at the hypocritical, judgmental crowd. And it's good that we judge sometimes. We have to, right? But this is not the, the hypocrisy is, I think, what he's really after. You know, if we had a little bit more time, we could go to Matthew 7, 1 through 5, where Jesus says, take this back, take the uh, log out of your own eye, right? It's it. In fact, we got to go there. Sorry, Josh, we're coming to you. Get, no, go no, no. real fast. <laughs> That's where I was going, where so you? this is good. Oh, good. Okay. I, I um, kind of take that here. What is he saying here that um, it's Matthew 7, 1 to 5, I think. Take over there, Josh. Yeah, I think probably Mark has been really helpful on this point for me personally, just listening to him talk about this idea of passing judgment. It's almost like the mantra of our day, you know, don't judge, who are you to judge? Uh, you just hear this so often about kind of in the broader culture not making judgments. But I think biblically speaking, and certainly here in, in uh, Matthew 7, uh, 1 to 5, Jesus says, um, notice, notice the judgment. is it, He's not saying don't judge at all. That he, Jesus is very clear here in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, and I'll just go ahead and read it. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so I don't think it's saying don't ever judge. Jesus is getting at making a right judgment. And here in Matthew 7 and then in Romans 2, I think there's clear example that we tend to look on ourselves way more favorably than we ought. And I think that's kind of the thrust of the, the text there in Romans 2, is that we oftentimes don't make a right judgment of ourselves. We're, we're quick to judge other people when, when we may be practicing the very same things, uh, maybe in a different degree or a different trajectory but, or, or intensity, but oftentimes we're making bad judgments. And I think Paul has kind of taken aim at the, the people doing that here. And probably, you know, it says uh, they, they practice the very same things there at the end of verse 1. He's probably referring to maybe not so much the earlier stuff in chapter 1, but that massive vice list. Yep. That probably they were engaging in a lot of those practices, um, but then failing to realize it in themselves. Carter? Yeah, I just, you know, I think Paul makes a clear distinction that there is a greater severity on the part of the one who upholds the law of God and yet fosters a secret animosity and hatred toward God in the corner of their hearts. Because, I mean, at least the the um, pagans in chapter 1, they're consistent. But the hypocrites in chapter 2, they're just, they're completely lying about who they are and portraying a f false picture of who God is. Isn't that interesting? 
And so you see, boy, that's good stuff, Carter, because you look in chapter 1, you therefore have no excuse. 118 said that the, um, the, hip, or the Gentile, they had no excuse. Remember that? Uh, verse 20, I guess. Um, so that you are without excuse because of general revelation. But this group has had general revelation, and, and you said this, Josh, in a neat way, but they've also had some teaching on morality. So, uh, Carter, I think you're I think you're exactly right. Neither of them has an excuse, and God's judgment is always going to be perfect. We aren't going to be able to judge perfectly. God's always is. Uh, when Mark was teaching um, this at Watkinsville, he he compared it to the um, the prodigal son. Chapter one's the the prod, the younger brother, right? Chapter two's the older brother. Remember how self righteous that guy was. You know, and just, and God ends up drawing the younger brother to himself and the older brother never went to the party. He would never get involved here. And so there is, I think, when, and this is kind of convicting to us, but for us church people, you got the uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll guy over here. But for us church people, I think chapter two is a little more uh, geared toward us. In, in how we see things, um, just like Josh said, we never compare our sin to others and conclude that we're superior. And I just think that's pretty natural in me. And I was doing some kind of not fun to think about, but just some uh, kind of spiritual inventory this week. And I just thought about, oh, there's a lot of things. Like if somebody's anxious and I don't happen to be anxious, I may really think down on them. Or if they have doubt and I don't have that doubt that day, I might just, you know, kind of have a self-righteousness. I remember before I was a parent, I was an expert in parenting. Oh, man, could I be critical of parents. Look at the knothead they're raising right there. Right? They must be way off. And then that... The minute I became a parent, and it was probably took five minutes, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in way over my head here. Like, I don't know. And so there's, you know, there's this self-righteousness that can just creep in. And I will bring, I did not do the job, maybe we'll post this too, but Jonathan Edwards on spiritual pride, really, really good. Maybe I'll bring some hard copies on that uh, next week as well. But um, can you... Keep going there, Josh. Do you have more on verse 1? Well, I'll just share this quick anecdote. I was thinking about how I do this this week. I, I agree with you, Jerry. I think it's natural, kind of a natural human tendency. And one of the things when I was teaching the last few years and even now still in my job with working with middle school boys, um, if I ever catch them lying, I mean, I am really hard on them. And the punishment is, is very strict and severe. The consequences um, are a big deal. We, we, you know, we know Satan's the father of lies. So I really come down on hard about lying. But sometimes I will kind of manipulate the truth to fit my own interests, you know, or make, make myself go in a better light. And I think that's the, the same idea there um, with, with passing judgment or, or, you know, I think the consequences are right for that, but passing judgment on them, but not realizing that I myself may be doing the same thing in uh, stretching the truth. Yeah. Carter? Yeah, I just think it feeds right into our um, hunger to uh, exalt self and 
take the role of playing God, really, mm-hmm. and it's it's something I'm going to do on yeah. every day. So. No, I think so, and and I and I think we really need to to take some own spiritual inventory here and just say, well, I imagine all of us are in a battle here. Um, I read, I got interested, Boyce quoted Al Capone, um, of all people, and he said, you know, the guy's wicked. I spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time. And all I get is abuse in the existence of a haunting man, like he couldn't believe that they were after him, right? All he's doing is helping people. He's just, we know that that's not, but, and then uh, this was from Don Carson. He said, it's ironic that in the 20th century, the bloodiest century in history, not just because of the Holocaust, but because of millions killed under Stalin in Ukraine, millions killed in China under Mayo, perhaps 20% of the population of Cambodia executed under Pol Pot, 800,000 uh, Turks killed in Rwanda, 30 million by abortion in America. Is it a great irony that at the end of the bloodiest century in history that there are people who deny the existence of evil. And there's still people who believe that human beings are great, basically good. Listen to country music for about a half an hour, right? Believe all people are good. That's, it's, it's so amazing. You just need, ed- they say you just need education, not salvation. Our century teaches, if our century teaches anything, and he's writing this at the end of last century, it's that the uneducated have no corner on depravity. Right, no matter how educated we are, there is a great depravity. Why is it important that we remember this? Why is the depravity of man such an underrated doctrine? How are we going to go off the rails if we don't think about this? Because it shows you the Yeah, oh, I, first and foremost, right? If we don't feel that we're that sinful, we don't feel like we need Jesus very badly. Yep, exactly right. It's huge. What and else? And also, uh, today's culture makes much of the concept of self-esteem. Oh, yeah. I personally think self-esteem is a false doctrine from Satan in that it contradicts the true doctrine of total depravity. Yep, Jesse, thank you. We um, need him put you right on uh, on the World Wide Web there, for sure. Yeah, I mean, just because it is. And that's such an emphasis. But, Josh, you probably run into that in counseling. Every day. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so amazing. So when you go back to chapter 1, verses uh, 1 to 3 there, therefore you have no excuse, oh man, because everyone who uh, judges, uh, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the same things. And let's just be honest. When we look at that list of 21 vices, I'm guilty. I'm I'm guilty every day. Even as a believer, I'm still guilty of doing those things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God's judgment is right. We saw that in 118. For the heathen, we see it in chapter 2. Verse 2, for every one of us. We all deserve judgment, and we just need to know that. We, every one of us that's believers, get far better than we deserve, uh, for sure. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge that those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
And the obvious answer to that diatribe is, we should say, is no. We realize we deserve judgment. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you guys have comments on those three words there? Or on that verse altogether, Carter? Yeah, I think it's it's a really sobering thought to um, to ponder the ongoing abuse of God's patience and His long suffering. Um, specifically, because you know we have it's like we have sort of convinced ourselves that the common graces of God that show up in everyday life that. They show up so much that we we feel like it is owed to us by yeah. God. So, the the precious time you get to spend with your little niece or nephew or your children or your friends or the the meals that you get to share with your parents, we think that that is owed to us. And God graciously gives us those things as a gift. And um, at the moment or at the point that the Lord decides to withhold. His kindness and His grace, and to issue justice, we cry out to God that He's a tyrant, and you know that's just. I think it's something that's it's very prevalent in our own hearts everywhere. And since God, you know, He doesn't owe us a single breath of life or any second. He, I mean, you could see it even in Paul's life where he, he, he long suffers and he endures the evil that Paul did when he ravaged the church Mm -hmm. and he um the lord he he dealt with israel for that all that time he rescued them from the house of bondage slavery and in in egypt they they grumbled and they complained the whole time and he gave them bread and he gave them water to drink out of a rock provided them you know uh game birds to eat for meat and they 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 were driven in their calcitrant you know rebellion towards him so much that they were put into exile and he rescued them from exile again mm. and ultimately he displays his long suffering in sending us an advocate to take up our cause and to plead our case before the judgment of God which compared with our judgment his judgment is impartial it's inescapable and it's just so. good impartial inescapable and, and just for sure Josh I don't know if I have much to add, but um, two, three, do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment? I think you got the impartial, perfect um, God, the appointed judge of all the earth, contrasted with the impartial human wrong judgers, and we know that God will rightly judge. And then I think verse 4, what Carter just went into, kind of heightens the severity. Not only are they wrongfully judging, but they're uh, presumptuously um, acting on or not calling to mind God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. And um, I don't think there's just blind self-deception, but there's even scorn. Yeah, that one commentator said that word presume might be stronger than that. Like you're really almost mocking God's uh, offer of these of these sort of things. Two responses. 
to this incredible kindness is either going to be repentance or defiance in there. Those are the only two options. We repent. It's That's what these three things are here for, um, to cause us to repent. Verse 4, um, the kindness, forbearance, and patience. God's kindness is to lead to repentance. Um, but we know that even though God's very patient in his judgment, it's postponed but not forgotten. Right? It's judgment is going to happen. It's restrained, but it's not nullified. Stott argues that there were three reasons that these attributes should lead us to repentance. There's probably more. Let me read them to you. He's good. The natural man does not love God's sovereignty or holiness, but these three qualities, kindness, tolerance, and patience, everyone would admit that that kind of God is indeed a good God. So those things should uh, really continue to pull us toward repentance. He's tolerant. He's willing to save you, and then his patience gives you the opportunity to repent. You might remember Second uh, Peter uh, 3, 9. You know, his patience is in waiting to us. He has given us another day to repent. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, raised to the cross. He is willing to bring you uh, to himself, to give you salvation. So eternal life of everyone depends on the kindness of God, not on our goodness. If you see anything um, in that, that it, it certainly should be that. So getting to verse 5. And this is just a terrifying verse. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. That was, uh, I don't know, maybe a decade ago studying this verse. I just, uh, and reading commentators, that uh, everybody believes that there will be a different judgment for each unbeliever. there It's just not cut and dry. Now, in my mind, I think, when you go to hell, how could one person's hell be different than someone else's? In my mind, I don't quite grasp that. And he really doesn't say here, or maybe anywhere in Scripture, how that is different a lot. But they are storing up wrath. So some people have stored up more wrath than others. But I think here's what we know for sure, which is terrifying, is that the unbeliever every day with every thought, with every word, with every action, all the time, they are storing up wrath. They are storing up God's wrath. And it is a righteous wrath. It's not a wrath that's like ours. It's a it's 100% deserved. But only the unbeliever gets what they deserve. You know what, as believers... We're just storing up treasures in heaven. We are not storing up this wrath. This wrath was paid on the cross by Jesus. He was the propitiation. He satisfied that perfect wrath. But for the unbeliever, they continue day in and day out to store up wrath. And I hope that gives us a heart for them to go after them in a different way. Carter, any thoughts on five? Josh, didn't you say that this, like, for you, one of the most sobering verses in all of the New Dude. Testament, all the Bible? It is to me, because when you think about eternity and hell, that, and throw out some things, what is most terrifying when you think about the the unbeliever um, spending eternity there? And I and I'm certain that we all know people that we believe. 
not knowing their heart exactly that they're they're probably there currently. Okay, throw out what's very sobering about the doctrine of hell. I think it's the fact that it's eternal. Like that people think this life is long, but yeah. this life is I guess the life on earth is so short yeah. in comparison. Good. Yeah, it's eternal. There's no doubt. It's conscious and it's eternal. MacArthur made three points on that, that there's a good number of people that really try to teach annihilation that will just be annihilated, and we're not even, it, that is so unbiblical, and nowhere in scripture, that I don't think we're even going to spend any time on it. We, if we had a decade, we could probably spend time on that, but there are so many people that believe that, but that is, there is nothing in scripture that would point us toward that, or that universalism, that everyone would come to be a believer. That's not true, right? Wides the door that leads to destruction and many enter through it. Narrows the way that leads to life and only a few find it. So there are not very many believers at all. Or I think he called the third one inclusivism that everybody think about this. That And, and people would like to believe this, but it's just not true. That everybody that hasn't heard the gospel, that they may be believers. Somebody out there right now that God could take that, that God could take them to heaven. But that, there's no nothing in scripture that would lead us to believe that either. And Mark's comment on that is that, well then, I, for instance, in our family, I better not tell Ben and Mags the gospel ever, right? Because what happens if it's only by hearing that makes them? So God is not judging people for what they don't know. He's judging them for what they do know. In chapter 1, general revelation. In chapter 2, general revelation plus some new things here. What other things about hell just are um, unimaginable to you? Separation from just the love of God? Yeah, the love of God. Only receiving the wrath of God, but none of his love. Jerry, I'm with you. Separation from the love of God. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I look back at my own life, and when I was in my sin, and God rescued me from it, but to be given back over unto it. Yes. In its full manifestation. In its full manifestation, God gave them over. He's really letting people do what they're asking Him to do. Right? Leave me alone is what the unbeliever says to God, and He leaves them alone with His wrath. Oh, yes. What else? We'll post a lot of things from Jonathan Edwards uh, um, here on, on hell, but what other things are terrifying when you think about eternity there? Pain. Yeah, no, right. And, and that the body is made, I think this is, that we have to believe this, that God gives them a new body as well, in fact, Jonathan Edwards believed, if I remember this right, that they are maybe hypersensitive in their, in, to, their, to that. That it may be that their sensitivity is more than ours. Don't you think that burns hurt extra? Burns are terrible. And I wonder if it's God did that on purpose for us to think about that. To think about what that would be like for all of eternity. Because that's a literal thing there. What else? The, etern the, eternal, the eternality of hell, hell being eternal, uh, 
Paul Washer says, the reason eternity in hell is appropriate is because sin is a crime against an infinite being. That's exactly right. Right. That's so good. You get two things to say how um, heinous is sin. You can look at two things there. One is that God killed his son. Unimaginable. He did not spare his own son. And he killed the Lord Jesus, crushed him. Isaiah uh, 53.10. Right? In order to, to free us from sin. But secondly, that hell is eternal. And so when we ask the students that same question, Jesse, and they's like, okay, how do we know that the unbeliever deserves that for eternity? Why is hell eternal? And they'll go beat around that bush and, you know, heaven's eternal, hell has to be eternal. There's a lot of pretty good answers, but that is the one. That is that if there, if you only committed one sin, that it's not the number of sins, it's who the sin is against. And the sin is against an infinitely holy God. And so one sin there would mean an infinite amount of, uh, of pain and torment forever and ever. Yeah, I, I mean, just hopping off what you guys said with the eternality of hell, sometimes the school day feels like it's eternally long, yeah. you know? And then sometimes the school year feels like it just lasts forever. But can you imagine... The eternality of hell, like a thousand years, a thousand years in hell, enduring God's wrath, his directed wrath poured out on a sinner, and then getting to the end of that thousand years and being no closer to the end of that torment. In fact, uh, being the same point then of enduring that wrath as you were the previous thousand years, and that going on forever and ever and ever. I mean, it's just a chilling proposition to think about. And I think one of the great lies of modernity is that it's gloomy or, or morbid to think about hell. Um, and we read Ed Donnelly's book, Heaven and Hell. I, I mean, I recommend this extremely highly. The first couple chapters are on hell. But one of the points he makes is that imagine you had a team of doctors that gather to uh, get together to talk about a cure for, uh, you know, a life-ending ailment. Um, you know, that would be a noble cause, a noble pursuit. And let's say they found a cure and presented it. That, that would not be considered morbid or gloomy to devote their time to, to looking at a cure for something like that. And then, you know, with hell, we, we want to talk about it so that we warn people what comes after death? I don't. I don't think it's a gloomy or, or, or morbid or taboo topic at all. Um, I mean, I think we should. And then, in God's mercy, He has warned us about hell in His Word. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has told us the the wrath that is to come, and then how to flee that wrath, and then provided a way for us to escape that wrath. Um, I just think the you know these kind of thoughts, especially Donnelly and in through God's Word, help to kind of renew the mind and, and think clearly on this topic. And I, mean, I think it should be kind of regularly informing our thinking in a lot of areas. Yeah, for sure, Carter. <clears throat> I just want to go back to what y'all said about just the reality of God giving people what they ultimately want and giving them over to, it's not like he's dragging people kicking and screaming to hell. They chose that for themselves yeah. and there's a further, further hardening of their heart and there's no like 
all of a sudden they're born again once they enter eternal punishment. There, there's a con, like a deeper hatred toward God going yeah. on there. And that's a, and that's a Hebrews nine twenty seven. Everybody dies once, and after that they face judgment. There's no other chance. And when you see there's no excuse here in uh, one twenty, and then here again in two one, that's it's on us, right? It's on the unbeliever. That is not there's the blame is squarely on us. Someone said this I thought was interesting is God's wrath is accumulating. Boyce said that we see a little spill over now and then. Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, right? You saw some of God's wrath there. But this is accumulating wrath in a terrifying um, way. And so I think you, when you look at this, you just think we have got to. How about this? Darkness. Complete darkness. One of the things that go with it that I get uh, cranky about when the power goes out is just how dark it is. I don't do well in the dark. I can't see in the dark hardly at all. I can't see in the light very well. So it's just I, I just get the darkness gives me the willies. And we're talking about possibly completely dark for all of eternity. It sure sounds like that. Yes, sir. Um, just one one thing I think like when I talk to people. I think makes it really simple is as a Christian you you have a hope and a joy and a peace that actually goes past that Yeah. and the scary thing about the unbeliever is that the things that they're finding their hope in there, it doesn't take them past that no sir, so right whatever they're turning to in this life yeah. they won't be able to turn to in the next life so, it's, so I think that's an easy way to talk about that so. yes sir, that's very good yep that's exactly right. How about, um, and, and I believe this is the case, it seems like at least Edward's leading this way, how about all alone for eternity? And you just think, I mean, even if you're introverted, you might like to be alone for, a, a, you know, a day or two. I like about 35 seconds is as long as I can be alone without really needing to, I got to call somebody or talk to somebody. But, an eternity, dark, alone, that kind of pain, with no hope. Never ever to be um, rescued. We The rescue time, to, today is the day of salvation. And, and please, to just to close this, oh, this is just as terrifying, but please turn here. Revelation 20. Revelation 20. And it's another passage where you see that there is a storing up. We are saved only through the blood of Christ. But we are judged. The unbeliever will be judged by their works, by what they have done. Look at Revelation 20, um, verse, maybe we should start in verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. The eternality, once again there. And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. There was no place found for them. The commentators, it's like everything has to get, this is such a terrifying moment that everyone flees, everything flees. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. The books, we believe, are a cat a uh, a listing of every sin, of every sin ever done, every thought, 
every word, every bad attitude, every thing, every action, that's done. And then if your name is not in the book of life and the dead were judged <coughs> by what was written in the books, look at that word, uh, phrase, according to what they had done. That's why we believe this is an accumulative effect. According to what they have done, the sea gave up the dead that were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged, each one of them. Look at this, according to what they have done. After death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, there's a second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This, we believe, is the final judgment. Um, and Scripture clearly teaches that. Let's go, once again, be so thankful that Jesus is our propitiation. It gives us a great thankfulness for what the Lord has done for us. But then let's go after the unbeliever with a different sort of zeal and a different sort of love and compassion to share the gospel with them. And the Lord may save them and the Lord may deliver uh, them from this. And some of you that are new, Thomas, Caitlin, you know that, that you remember so well what it was like without the Lord. And now there's this hope that there isn't for the unbeliever. Um, final thoughts, guys. Joshua, could you pray and, and ask that we would respond um, biblically to what we've learned? Sure. Father, what a heavy topic, a sobering topic. Lord, I pray, as Jerry mentioned, that we would have a renewed uh, worship of you for for Christ and for him being our propitiation, for delivering us from this wrath. And Lord, help us to be uh, eager and um, inflame our zeal for the non-believer. Help us to be compassionate and to pursue them with a renewed vigor and to warn them of the wrath to come and point them to Christ, our blessed Savior. I ask this in Christ, in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We will look to get to 16 next week.